Amen. Thank you, Tim. If you will, take your Bibles and open them to the Psalms, uh, Psalm 77, and we're going to read it in its entirety in just a moment. Uh, if uh, a few moments ago you uh, looked and thought, something's not quite right with uh, Tim's face today, well, uh, I'm just proving what our loving uh, deacon chairman said to me. He said, I've always known you had a screw loose. Well, uh, the screw came out of my glasses, and so I'm missing uh, uh, one earpiece, and so I'm kind of trying to hobble through uh, with these today. I uh, went to my drawer and um, have several old sets of prescriptions and uh, several of the Dollar Tree uh, magnifying lenses, and quite honestly, I guess I've gotten so old that, it, that even the Dollar Tree glasses won't magnify enough for me to be able to read the print, so I had to go this particular route, but we will be fine, and uh, we'll have to look into getting a repair job done on these this week. Again, uh, from the Psalms, Psalm 77, if I were to say anything, I guess in, in the broad, general sense, uh, in terms of the Psalms, I would say this one word. Honest, or honesty. Uh, that is, the psalmist in expressing uh, many times the angst of their heart, or even the confidence of their heart, are very honest about the difficulties of God's people living in a fallen world. They are often in the midst of crisis, of, of pressure, and Many times the Psalms begin with a cry of despair, a, 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 an acknowledgement of my circumstances are difficult. Why, why is it that I find myself in, in this uh, time, this season of profound suffering? But as much as they're honest, they are not stationary. In that if you follow a psalm from its opening lines to its closing lines, even, even these that are characterized as laments, of cries of anguish, they move from this feeling or this sense of hopelessness and despair. They move towards an acknowledgement of, a confession of the goodness and the power of Almighty God. And so my hope today is we hopefully are at least uh, through the midpoint of this uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis. I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at this psalm and to think about life and ministry both before and during and after COVID-19. So read with me, if you will, beginning in the first verse of Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretching out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. 
you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. When the Lord, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water and the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Pray with me if you will this morning. Father, we thank you for your truth. Uh, it, it's been given to us through the work of your Spirit. And now we appeal to you that your Spirit would give me an ability to communicate accurately and faithfully and that your people would indeed hear your voice. And God, that you would work in them. God, that they would grow in your grace. And again, Lord, if there is one that is going to hear uh, this live stream today or in future days, that you would so work in their hearts, that you would bring them to the place of faith and repentance. God, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this particular psalm, uh, we're see, we see in kind of the uh, uh, margins or maybe a, a header over uh, the, the beginning of the text uh, that uh, this psalm is addressed to the choir master. It is associated with a man by the name of Asaph. Uh, he is identified in Scripture as a, a Levite. Uh, one who operated uh, in the realm of the temple and uh, seemingly uh, at least a part of his job was to uh, provide uh, music uh, for the, the time when uh, the people of Israel gathered uh, for worship. We don't know much about the particular context that this was written during. Uh, uh, it's believed Asaph was an associate of David's and maybe as David went through the many trials of, of his life and of, of his uh, reign as king, uh, maybe Asaph felt uh, the threat and the, the trouble that surrounded David. And so maybe it was during that time that he was uh, moved to, to write in this fashion. We 
simply do not know. But when we read a psalm like this, we can be reminded that God's people have known adversity since the day of Adam's fall. That God's people have known what it is to suffer. They have known what it is to, to lapse into seasons of anxiety, depression, and despair because of the, the various providences that God has brought into their lives. But may we, like the psalmist before us, may we know, may we always express, may we live in light of the reality that God has been and He always will be faithful. That is not the same thing as saying that God will always act on my timetable to do what that which I desire for Him to do. Uh, that doesn't, in other words, that doesn't guarantee that God is going to make you happy in this season or any other season in your life. But indeed, He will always deliver His people. And so let's look at this. And we will begin with this uh, first section of the suffering psalmist, beginning in uh, verse 1, and I call this his troubled cry. Now, there are a number of ways of outlining this particular psalm. Uh, if you follow the Silas, uh, you can uh, probably divide it into four uh, different sections. I chose to divide it into three. There's nothing miraculous or inspired about my division. It just as I looked at the psalm, this is the route I chose uh, to take. And so I've divided it into three parts. His troubled cry, his trembling appeal, and his triumphant confession. And so we want to look at each section then, and then I will come back and hopefully make some application uh, for us and to us. And so in this initial section of the psalm, uh, we see, again, this expression of anguish. And if we were to survey the psalms, and even much of the prophetic literature, I'm reminded of the prophet Habakkuk. And, and he's like, how can what I see be going on? How is it that these vile Babylonians are going to overrun and ruin us? And God simply says, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. That it's going to be beyond your imagination. But I've got this. I'm at work. And so we, don't, we do not understand what God is doing. We don't understand what his ultimate purpose is. I believe that most of us will die, if not all of us will die, with unanswered questions as to the why certain things have happened as they did but we can die with the confidence that the God who saved us is the God who has never left us and he has never forsaken us and so the psalmist expresses his his crying out to God that it is indeed a day of of trouble a day that that the circumstances of his life are are difficult and he describes it that, that he's seeking the Lord, that, that he is exhausting himself in the night as he stretches out his hands and says, God, speak to me. God, be real to me. God, come be present with me. And 
most Christians, if they haven't experienced this type of thing, you will. You will. These seasons in which difficulty comes. Notice there at the end of verse 2, he says, My soul refuses to be comforted. A, a deep, deep anguish of heart and mind. A, an inability to understand an infinite God, a, a good God, a faithful God, that has allowed a difficulty to come into the life of his people where it is strictly personal or whether it's of a, a more universal, a more corporate reality of suffering. But in this season, he finds no peace. He finds no comfort. As he, as he thinks about God and, and, his, and his goodness, even the memories of the goodness of God causes him to, to faint. It, it, it's like if, if God is so good and he has been so good to me and I'm in this season to despair, how, how am I to live in this time? He goes on and describes his sleeplessness. You hold my eyelids open. I can't even talk about it. His heart is so broken. He is in such deep anguish that sleep will not come to him. One of the things in, in talking to my peers, uh, baby boomers, and all of us baby boomers aren't babies anymore. We don't even boom very much anymore. Uh, that is, we're getting older. We're getting older. And for most of us, we have difficulty sleeping. It's just a reality. Whether it's from uh, physical pain of can't get comfortable or get things on your mind that you can't get off or Maybe it's simply because of the troubles that we have seen. You see, the longer you live, the more you have experienced the fallenness of the world. Remember those three categories. You've seen relationships go sour. You've seen great anxiety over providing a livelihood. And you've seen those that you love or maybe you've experienced it yourself sickness and death I stepped in with a family this week as as we um, conducted a funeral for a beloved mother and I find myself increasingly so very weary of seeing people that I love experience loss and all of the things that go along with that and so it seems the older we get in some sense, the more troubled we are. We're more aware of the realities of a fallen world. And so, the psalmist is so, in such deep despair. I just, I just can't even talk about it. Have you ever been so aggrieved that you just, you just don't even have the words? You don't want to speak. You, you, you've got something to say in some sense, but I just don't want to speak. That's where the psalmist is living. And yet, in that, he is not going to give up hope. He begins to reflect, verse 5, on the days of old. Whether he's thinking personally, in, in terms of God's personal faithfulness 
uh, to him, or whether he's thinking more historically of how God has worked uh, among his people. But he's reflecting upon God. And so he engages, or he, 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 he decides, he says, verse 6, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. In other words, he comes to a place that he makes a, a type of resolve that I'm going to remember the praises of my God. I'm going to think about that which is expressed in the praises of my God. I'm going to think deeply about these things. And so he asks a series of five questions beginning in verse 7. 7 through 9. There are five questions. They are rhetorical, they're catechismal, and they're conclusive. That is, they're rhetorical in the sense that he's asking them of himself and he's asking of us to think about the answer. He knows what the answer is, but as a discipline, he's forcing himself to think about these things. He asked the first question in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? What's the answer to that? It may seem as though this season is going all the way through eternity. But the answer is no. No. Will the Lord spurn forever? No. Will he never again be favorable? No. Verse 8. Second question. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? When you're in the midst of despair, can you ask yourself that question? Has the faithful love of God... Now, right, right there in verse 8, that word steadfast love. That's a very important word in the Old Testament. One word. Kessid. It looks like in English when it's transliterated, hesed, H-E-S-E-D, kessed. It is a word that describes God's faithful commitment to his people. His, his benevolence and his goodness and his, his power and his protection that is promised to his people. So, has his kessed forever ceased? No. No. As uh, Jeremiah said in Lamentations, in which from which the song, Greatest Thy Faithfulness, stems from. Again, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Again, great is thy faithfulness. Great is your covenantal love. So, has his steadfast love forever ceased? What's the answer? No. No. Third question. Are his promises at an end for all time? God had made a promise to national Israel, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. That's it. Made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through your descendants, I'm going to bless the entirety of the world. God continued to make promises to the nation of Israel that I will never leave you or forsake you. So, has he determined to abandon his promises? No. Fourth question, verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Answer? No. No. He has not forgotten how to be gracious. In fact, He is gracious to us even in that season of suffering. 
as He allows us to delve into the infinite depth and quality of the goodness of God. As we think about these things, as we're forced, as, as we come to the end of the proverbial rope, we're forced to realize there are no other answers other than God and God Himself. And so we realize He has not forgotten. This is a season of life. And then the final of the five questions, has he in anger shut up compassion? Again, the answer is what? No. Again, reminders that God, even in the time of difficulty, is gracious to us, his people. And so, in forcing himself to, to think about the goodness of God, to ask these instructive questions. In verse 10, he begins a series of I wills. I wills. You know, the human will is a, is a very strange thing. Uh, theologians can speak of free will, and theologians can speak of the bondage of the will, and uh, there's, there's aspects to both terms that are absolutely uh, true, you've heard me say many times that human beings do what they want to do. All the time. Every time. Without exception. They do what they want to do. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Well, If somebody pulls a gun on me and says, give me uh, your, their wallet, or your wallet, uh, I'm not doing what I want to do. Yeah, you are. You'd rather give them your wallet than them shoot you. Yeah. Yeah, you're doing what you want to do. But, but the, the will... And, what I find in our country, and unfortunately more tragically within the church, are weak-willed people, driven by kind of a vapid spirituality, uh, whimsical notions about God, and just a, a, an entirely emotion-based concept of what it means to worship and serve God. Uh, a, a, a Christian living based on the way I feel. And I can assure you that that type of Christianity will go sideways in a hurry. And so he makes a, a, a statement of, of resolute intentionality. Resolute intentionality or I call this this group of I wills assertive resolutions assertive resolutions I this is what I'm going to set my heart my mind my will to doing even sometimes it's, it's as I use the term gross and what I mean is this I'm gonna put my body in the building or the place where I may be instructed. In other words, I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like studying Scripture. But I can put the keys in the car. I can drive to church. And I can put myself in a place where the Word of God is going to be taught. The, the means of grace that God has given me, where my, whereby He may minister to me to pull me out of this depth of despair. I will. I will do what? I'm going to appeal to my own fallen emotions 
by contemplating the way that God has demonstrated His power in faithfully delivering God's people. You remember Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not going to bow the knee, O king. Our God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Now we know the rest of the story God chose to deliver. How many of God's faithful have been faced with a similar crisis point and God simply chose to either let them endure the suffering for the moment or even endure to the point of death and simply enter into his presence. But again, we need to be reminded that our omniscient, omnipotent God is there with us to deliver us as He sees fit. You know, you think about being uh, out in a lake or a swimming pool or something like that and, and starting to, to drown. And someone, a lifeguard, comes to rescue you. You don't argue with the rescuer as to how he's going to rescue you. You simply entrust yourself into his care. I don't know how God will choose to rescue his people. But he will rescue us according to his good and perfect plan. And then... In verse 11, uh, again, the the second of these uh, assertive resolutions, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. One of the things that the Bible does for us is record for us the testimony to God's faithfulness. Uh, Again, it, it always strikes me when... Uh, the Old Covenant saints would be uh, delivered by God and God's instruction was stack up some rocks there. Stack up some rocks there. Build a monument. Build an altar. Okay? Why? So every time you walk by that place, you can tell your kids about the faithfulness of your God. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, Asaph wants to remember, wants the things that he was taught as a child of the great acts of deliverance of Almighty God. He simply wants to instruct his heart with those truths. He says, the third of the I wills, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I'm just going to be amazed. I can't explain everything that you've ever done. I don't understand fully all of the things that you have done. But I'm going to contemplate them. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to meditate on your grace and upon your power. Now, we move beginning there in verse 10 from this troubled cry to this trembling appeal. It really picks up more in verse 13 with these second person pronouns, you and your. These confessions of God's goodness. These testimonies that God is good and faithful. Your way, O God, is holy. God, you are a holy God. I don't fully understand you because I'm not God. I am, by definition, finite 
And you are by definition infinite. You're separate and you're above all that is. You are the creator, not the creative. And so you are holy. And there's no one like you. You are the God who works wonders. You're, you're the one that has revealed yourself down through history to your people. You have called them out of their darkness into your marvelous light. And you have redeemed your people. You, you, have, you have demonstrated your power among them. You have shown your care over the course of history. And again, what is the assumption that is beginning to settle upon the psalmist? That God, you have a history. You have a track record of being faithful, of delivering, and you will now. It, 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 it may not, again, it may, life may not work itself out. It may not turn out the way that you would like for it to, to turn out. That is not the promise of the Bible. You don't get to say, God, this is the way I want these things to turn out, and if they don't turn out this way, I quit. What you'll find, again, is no matter the circumstances, God will go through the challenge, the difficulty, the suffering with you. That He will work it for ultimate good, for His glory. He, he will work in you. He will, th this time of anxiety and angst and difficulty will be the time in which God will do the most deep and powerful work in your life. It is typically not on the bed of ease that God's people have been most instructed. It is on the bed of suffering. And so, in moving through this time of, of troubled expression of the realities of life, and again, this, this trembling approach uh, to God in which he reminds himself of, of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, he moves beginning in verse 16 in what I call his triumphant confession. Again, from defeat, and despair, again, to triumph. Notice what I said. Psalms are honest. Many times they began with a, an expression of despair, of an assessment of the difficulty of life. But they don't stay there. They don't keep digging their hole deeper and deeper and deeper and become more despondent, more despondent, more despondent. Just sitting there just absolutely wringing their hands and wearing themselves out, just contemplating the difficulty. He moves from the difficulty to the God who is sovereign over the difficulty. He contemplates God and His faithfulness. And he, he, again, he's appealing to the history of Israel. I call this a, an instructive recollection, beginning there in verse 16. It seems to me that he is reflecting back on the time of God's delivering the nation through the Red Seas. Personifying nature. When the waters saw you, O oh God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they trembled. Now again, the psalmist is using a poetic license. He's personifying the waters. The waters didn't feel fear. But he's just saying that God is so very great. If the waters could have trembled, they would have. They would have. And 
seemingly describing some of the details that, that aren't as clear to us in Scripture about the, the exodus crossing of the Red Sea. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And I think the application or the implications of what he's saying is this. The children of Israel, having begun this journey out of Egypt, came to that Red Sea, and God left them there long enough to realize they were in danger. They, God left them there to, to experience the, the, the depth of their helplessness apart from the mighty intervention of Almighty God. That the, the ground was shaking and the, the, the earth was pouring forth that which was dangerous, lightning and rain. And they had a, an army of Egypt advancing upon them. And they had time to think, what do we do now? You remember, they start whining to Moses. Weren't there enough holes in the ground to bury us back in Egypt? And then God does what? He delivers them through the water. They march through on dry ground. The only explanation is that God delivered them. Now, I'm not real big on the type of interpretations and preaching. You know, what is, what is your giant? What are your five stones? You know, uh, you know, the God, what's your Red Sea? Just wait for God to part it. That, that's really not the function of, of the Scriptures. Okay? This tells us what God can do, what God did do, and that ultimately God is free to choose the manner through which He delivers His people, but He will also always deliver His people. He will always be faithful. They, we may be bent and broken in the process, and if we are, it was because we needed to be. It was because we, we needed to be bent and broken. And so, we see the psalmist move into this final confession. Verse 19, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God gave these two human leaders to visibly represent Himself before the people. And again, that God was ultimately the good shepherd. God was the, the shepherd who tended the flock, who, who led and fed and protected this precious flock. And then we know Him now as the good shepherd who laid down His life for His sheep. The good shepherd that shall never lose one of His sheep. The good shepherd who holds each of us in the palm of His hands. The good shepherd that walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And as I've said so many times, life in a fallen world is by definition lived in that valley. And so, we find ourselves in the valley. Uh, in my lifetime, again as a, a baby boomer, a, a time over the six, seven thousand year history of the world, a time of unrivaled prosperity. A, a time in which we can enjoy uh, leisure activities, we can in, enjoy uh, uh, 
the pleasures of a modern life in a way that previous generations could not have ever imagined. Are those blessings or are they curses? In that we think we've, we've become an entitled and self-centered people. And so, is God working to get our attention? Is, is God working to refine His people? Is, is God working to cause people to think about the realities of life, death, eternity. One of the things that uh, I have mentioned in some of these uh, live streams, you will probably find very few people that are not willing to expound upon the experience that we have had over these last two months. The why and the wherefore and the hows and so forth. We as believers have the answer. Okay? We have the answer, and the answer is not drugs, and it's not protocols, and it's not government intervention. The answer is Jesus Christ. Because just as this psalmist demonstrates God's people and the people of the world who are, again, unbelieving, we are going to go through difficulty. It's coming. It has come upon us. Each of us have, some degree or another, experienced some type of suffering. And so, let me see if I can draw, uh, I think, four things or four ideas that, that I think we can uh, take away uh, from this psalm. And you hear me say this over and over again. If you're going to live with any sanity, if you're going to live with any hope, you must develop, you must cultivate a biblical worldview. You must see all of life. You must see everything about yourself through the lens that the Word of God provides. And the only way that you can do this is to know your Bible. Not, not know what some Yahoo that's writing or broadcasting or however they do this, who takes the Scripture and twists it, tells you, but what has God revealed in the scripture again beginning with the source of our suffering why do we suffer how many times have I told you because of Genesis 3 all suffering traces its roots back to the rebellion of our first parents in the garden of Eden that is why all of nature is fallen Paul speaks of the reality of life in a fallen world that nature groans again a personification of nature until the time of the return of Christ to the to the the vindication of the people of God and so we shall go on feeling the the sorrow of life in a fallen world that we shall go on experiencing the the maladies of cancer diabetes or arthritis, or dementia, or viruses such as COVID-19. The, these things operate at the expense of the life of the hosts. They derive life by killing you. And that's a part of life in a fallen world. They will be a part of life in a fallen world. And so, 
because of these things, we're forced to, to live with some tensions in our world. It, things are complicated. We've been forced to think very seriously during these times about loving our neighbor and loving God. We've seen an infinite number of articles and essays. This is how you love your neighbor. You stay away from them. Things like that. Maybe. Maybe not. I think we'll look back on this with greater wisdom than we have now. But the point is, sometimes it's difficult to know how to love somebody. Sometimes you love people, and I mean this strictly metaphorically. You love them by kicking them in the seat of the pants. You, you love them by confronting them. You don't comfort them with where they are. You confront them regarding where they are and where they need to be. And so it's, it's difficult to, to know how to love God supremely and submit to His will and how that expresses itself in our interaction with others. It's with difficulty. And sometimes we get things wrong. And then we're faced right now with the tension between obeying God and government. How many times have I challenged the people of this church? And I hope that we've learned at least one thing during this time, that it is a precious privilege and it is a necessary endeavor for us to assemble ourselves as the people of God for the purpose of, of worshiping Almighty God and encouraging one another. That that is a, that is a biblical necessity. And during this season, we have been faced with a choice between civil obedience or civil disobedience. In that, again, the leaders of our nation, based on the information they were getting from the medical scientists, that it was a very dangerous thing for churches to, to meet together. We've accepted that for a, time. for a time. But it is one of those things that I have not been comfortable with. You make decisions, you make choices as what seems best, all things considered. Should we comply with the government at this point? I'm like many of you. Why is it that churches are such a danger when places like Walmart and the state ABC store are packed to the gills buying those necessary things like Jack Daniels and Jim Beam? I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to have more of these tensions in the days ahead. And then learning to trust God's good plan. We are where we are by God's design, not by any accident. God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. That, that God is numbered by days, that washing my hands and wearing a mask are not going to extend the days that God has allotted to us. But let me tell you what, you know what I did this morning? I took my blood pressure medicine. I put my seatbelt on before I got out on the street. I don't know how those things work together. That's for God to work out. But I know that, that we are responsible. In other words, that we trust God's good plan does not mean that we're entirely passive about everything. If you find yourself in a state of poor health, if you're overweight and you need exercise and you're eating too much, quit eating so much. Get some exercise. Improve your health. Don't just look at yourself in the mirror and say, well, I'm going to weigh 400 pounds. It's just what God has ordained for my life. 
I'm never going to get out and get any exercise. That's just go, I don't want to, and that's what God said. No, that is not how to understand the will and the way of God. But we trust God's good and under, overarching and undergirding plan, and sometimes we struggle to know how to respond, but we know, we know, we know that God has got us, and he's got his plan well under his control. And then, thinking about the source of our hope. Now, I've said from the very beginning, and I've been very uncomfortable with some of the actions of our government, including the $3 trillion they've thrown down this rabbit hole. But the government can't fix it or us. They're not going to. And our hope is not that the stock market is going to rebound. And I hope it does. Our hope is not, our hope is Jesus Christ. And can we see how fragile everything is apart from Jesus? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Where's your hope? That, that your stimulus check is going to sustain you? That, that, that the unemployment checks are going to keep coming? Our hope is in Christ. Our strength is in Christ. Ultimately, our peace is in Christ. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians. I pointed this out in one of the recent devotions. I want to return uh, to, to this. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is speaking uh, about future things and in terms of uh, understanding uh, death uh, within the uh, community there at Thessalonica and understanding uh, what it is to look forward to uh, the Lord's uh, return. And he, he says that uh, they are not living in the midst of the day of the Lord. It's going to come suddenly. And the characteristic of the age, look at verse 3, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. Again, the admonition of verse 6, we need to be awake and be sober. In other words, we can be at peace, we can be free from anxiety, but we need to be awake and understand the times in which we live. I'm amazed and, and incensed. Just me. When I hear people talk about, well, when it's safe to go out. Since the expulsion of Adam and Eve, it's never been safe to go out. In fact, we are out. We were in the garden. We were under the protectorate of God. We, there was not all of this stuff out there to destroy us. But we're out now. And there is simply no such thing as peace and security other than the peace and security that comes with the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace and security does not guarantee that our life shall be free of all sorrow and all burden. And so our peace is the Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus. And so in this, as we think about things biblically, we must cultivate a Christ-honoring attitude. Again, 
When we speak of learning contentment, as the Apostle Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, describing himself that he learned contentment, that he, that he learned whether he had little or much to, to be content in all of these providences. It does not mean be lazy. It doesn't mean, okay, I don't have food to eat. I'm broke. I'm about to lose my house. I'm just going to sit here and wait for God to deliver me. Oh, no. That's not what it means. But simply learning as you do what God has ordained that you do, namely work in the cases of those economic types of crisis. But other things in other realms, we're to learn to be content with God as the one who will see us through. Again, Jesus warned us to not be anxious. What good is your worrying going to do? It's not going to make you bigger and stronger. It's not going to make you live longer. And then, calculating profit and loss. Paul wrote also in that Philippian letter, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's he talking about? That's kind of strange. I remember, I think the first time I ever heard of that song was in a little youth song that we sang back in high school, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I'm like, that's weird. Here's the thing. If God ordains that I live, it'll be Christ working his way out in me to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's a good thing. I would pray that God would use me. And then if I die, I will go to be with him. That's the ultimate win. And so we can live with a, a, a deep sense of confidence, even in matters of life and death. I've told this story many times over the years. But I had a, my dad's oldest sister, my Aunt Olean, just a dear, sweet saint of God went in for a heart procedure, and she sat there in the parking lot with her son who was taking her to the, to the hospital, and she said, you know, it would be a good thing if this thing works. And if it doesn't, that'll be even better. And folks, it didn't work, and she got the better. She got the better. She went home to be with the Lord. To, to, to live for Christ is great gain. It's good. We should strive to live. She was striving to live. But if the Lord saw fit to take her home, how much better. And then con confessing confidence. I, I cannot tell you that, that things are going to be okay. But I can say with Job, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that I, He shall stand on this earth and that one day, although my flesh may rot away, I will see Him. I am confident in Him. And then live in the pursuit of joy. The pursuit of joy. And maybe, I think a better way of saying it, maybe pursuit of the one who gives joy. Pursuit of the one, everybody wants to be joyful. Even unbelievers want to be joyful. But we know the source of joy. And so, pursue that. Pursue it with all your might. That, that know that in God's right hand are pleasures forever. That in God, there is pleasure. In knowing Him and trusting Him. Again, in recognizing God's good purpose. That in all of these things we don't despair. He's working out His plan. He's working out the refining process in our life. And none of these things shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That whatever affliction we suffer, we can say with the Apostle Paul, He was putting me in the place so I would not rely upon ourself, myself, but I would rely on the God who raises the dead. Don't place your confidence in your doctor and a vaccine and the government. They can't raise the dead. 
but God has, and he will. Place your confidence there. The fourth thing this morning, and very quickly, to embrace our God-honoring responsibility. You know, so many times I just don't know God's will for my life, and yada, 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 yada. Let me tell you, you nail these things down, don't worry about it. First of all, pursue holiness. This is God's will for your life, that you be holy. Just do that. Then be alert and sober. Be alert and sober. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's dangerous out here. Yeah, be alert and sober. Be salt and light. I will contend at least in this country. Why are we struggling with things like abortion? Why are we struggling with things like gay marriage? It's because the salt has lost its saltiness. And what, are the, what, what is the world doing? They're just walking all over the church these days. They're absolutely just walking all over the church. Because what? We're, we're trying to be relevant. In that sense, the gospel will never be relevant. It's always been irrelevant. It's always been foolishness. And so, that we be what we are, namely salt and light. And then, the anticipation of a, a God-centered future. Paul wrote this amazing thing that he endured all things for the sake of the elect. That's not some high theological concept. He's saying this. God has been and always will be in the business of saving his people through the preaching of the gospel. And so whatever it takes, whatever I must suffer, I will do what it takes so that the gospel is preached so that people will be saved. And so, again, we need to anticipate the advance of the gospel, we need to be prepared. We need to have biblical priorities. What is the order? Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. I, it's, it's always funny. First thing that uh, the retiree, the people that I know that have retired, they say to you, I'm so busy, I don't know how time, have time to work. Everybody's busy. What are your priorities? What's, what's first? And then, again, recognizing realities. Life is going to hurt occasionally. Even seasons are occasioned by sorrow. Let me, I want to, these are some final comments. You may send me emails and say, Tim, you could have left this stuff alone. But just several final things. The world as we knew it is gone. It's gone in some sense. Um, I fear the government has engaged in a bad precedent, established a bad protocol and policy. Uh, there, every blip on the radar and every bump in the road, there's going to be a group crying for this type of government intervention. And that's bad. That's bad. That we live in a culture that has, including the church culture, that we've embraced safety and security over freedom. That's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. What we want is painless, cost-free, effortless living. And because of these two things, and I think the world is prepared for the Superman, the one that will declare peace and safety, Superman otherwise known as the Antichrist. There will be a guy. We'll be in a crisis one day. We will have spent all the trillions of dollars and somebody say, I can unravel this mess. I can sort out the issues. And we, we are being ripened for that day. The fourth thing, churches are going to be a problem. 
Christians are going to be a problem. We can't bow the knee. We're narrow, intolerant, and exclusionary by definition. All of these things are out of, out of step with the modern moral revolution. We have a certain clarity regarding truth that they lack. So difficult days are coming. But I will leave you with the good news. And this is the good news. The church will be more vibrant and more robust than ever before. As these days come upon us, the church will be stripped of those things that hinder us. That, that those that are, what did Thomas Paine call them, summer soldiers and sunshine patriots, they'll drop out. We won't see those guys anymore. But those that want to know the truth, that want to live with hope in the midst of hopelessness, that, that want to find a community that is real and vital, they, they will be a part of a strengthened church. And so that is my hope. That we will look back at the time before COVID-19, we'll remember the time we've lived through it, and we'll live for the time beyond it. I was given this little, well, it's not a list, it's a hymn, actually, or been set to, to music. Our friend Bob Shipp gave me this many years ago uh, by a man by the name of William Cooper. And he wrote these words, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and He rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He fashions up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace behind a, a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. What a beautiful thought. But I want to tell you this. William Cooper's life did not end well. He was a man given to great depression and despair. He tried to kill himself a number of times after writing this particular poem. But you know what? He's with the Lord now and he will tell you. God was always faithful. Even in the midst of a frowning providence, his will is always good for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, for the application of that truth to our lives. I pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that indeed he would work and he would work powerfully, that you would give us clarity for the decisions that lie ahead, that you would give us a great hope rooted in the resurrection of our Savior and a great confidence, Lord, as to what you would have us do as the people of God living in the days during and beyond COVID-19. God, you are with us. You have never forsaken a saint, and you never will. May we know and do your will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.